Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D, and today I'll be covering the case of the Luna family in Phoenix, Arizona. Let's get right to it. In 1993, the Luna family were living their version of the American dream. Married just after they graduated high school, 46-year-old Albert and 40-year-old Patricia had worked hard to build a life for their three children. Albert was a veteran of the Vietnam War who was now working as a lab technician and Patricia as a custodian. They had a cozy home on Monta Vista Street in the suburbs of West Phoenix. By this time, their firstborn son, Albert Jr., was 21 years old, their daughter, Rochelle, was 18 and a senior at Trevor Brown High School, and the baby of the family was their five-year-old son, Damien. Life for the Luna family was pretty good, but their 21-year-old son, Albert Jr., had recently had a few run-ins with the law. It wasn't anything too crazy and definitely nothing violent but he had been arrested the year prior in 1992 on petty theft and burglary charges. Court records obtained by the Arizona Republic show Albert Luna Jr. was convicted of theft and sentenced in March of 92 to four months probation for stealing liquor and cigarettes from a supermarket where he was working. And then again in October of 1992, Albert Jr. was sentenced to four months in jail for attempting to break into a hair salon in nearby Glendale. It's impossible to know exactly how Albert Sr. and Patricia felt about the position their son had put himself in, but they weren't the type of people who broke the law. They had always worked hard for everything they had, so I think it's pretty safe to say they weren't thrilled. Albert Jr. was young and dumb and clearly not making the right choices, but the Lunas likely figured he'd get it together. And it seemed like he was. Albert Jr. got a job at the Safeway grocery store where he worked as a custodian on the night shift. There, he met another young man by the name of Richard Jerf. Richard was 23 and had a bit of a criminal record himself. He had been arrested three separate times, once for shoplifting and two other times for extorting money from the students at the high school he attended, Independence High. According to court records again obtained by the Arizona Republic, In one instance, on November 16, 1988, Richard Jerf told a student to pay him $35 or else he would, quote, take him to the desert, beat his face in, and bury him. Seems a bit extreme for $35, but what do I know? Anyhow, Richard and Albert Jr. began working together at the Safeway and the pair became fast friends. As I'm sure you can imagine, Richard wasn't a good influence on Albert Jr., and it wasn't long before, according to Richard Jerf, the two friends began stealing from the Safeway together. Richard spoke to the Arizona Republic and stated, Albert Jr. and I were buddies, worked at the Safeway together. We even robbed the place together. We were burglar buddies. They were buddies all the way up until January of 1993, when Richard Jerf's apartment was broken into. 
Several items were taken, including an AK-47, a car alarm, a TV, a VCR, and some stereo equipment. Richard contacted the police and told them he believed his friend Albert Jr. was responsible for the burglary. But besides Richard's word, police really didn't have much to go on. So the months ticked on with no arrest in the burglary case. Getting nowhere with the cops, Richard claimed he called Albert Jr.'s mom Patricia and told her, but she didn't believe him either. So he decided to figure out once and for all if his friend was responsible. If you remember, one of the items taken from Richard's apartment was a car alarm. But as it turns out, one of the remotes had been left behind. So according to Richard, as he spoke to the Arizona Republic, late one night he drove to the Luna's home and hit the button on the remote. The alarm in Albert Jr.'s car went off. At that point, according to Richard himself, he decided he was going to get even. At first, he decided he'd get even by shooting out the windows in Albert Jr.'s car with a BB gun, and he did that a couple times. But that wasn't enough for Richard Jerf, and as time passed, he seethed with anger. Absolutely no one could have imagined what Richard Jerf would do next. Keeping your body in shape is important, but it's also important to keep your mind sharp, end the year right, and keep training your brain in Word Collect. Word Collect is my new favorite game. It's a word puzzle app and it's free. There are over 2,000 levels, so you never get bored playing. It starts easy but gets harder as you get better and actually responds to your play style and strengths. Word Collect is a fun and relaxing way to keep your mind sharp and grow your vocabulary. Ever since my kids discovered that I downloaded a new game, we've been passing the phone around to see who can beat the next level the fastest. I'm only slightly embarrassed to tell y'all that they've beat me more times than I'm willing to admit, but I'm glad they're having fun while learning something. New features have just been added for the holiday season, including new limited-time competitive events, so there has never been a better time to start playing Word Collect. Right now, Word Collect is offering you 2,500 coins and 500 gems for free when you download and play. Stop mindlessly scrolling through social media and train your brain while relaxing. Just go to the Apple or Google store and search for Word Collect. So, if you're like me and want to end 2023 with a bang, download Word Collect for free today. According to court documents and reports by the Arizona Republic, in the late morning hours of September 14, 1993, Richard Jerf drove over to the Luna family home, armed with a 9mm Beretta handgun, a knife, latex gloves, a red fuse cord, and a bouquet of fake flowers stuffed into a vase. Weapons concealed, he knocked on the door and told 40-year-old Patricia Luna he had flowers for Albert Jr., Now's probably a good time to tell you that though Richard had been vandalizing the cars parked at the Luna home, according to later court testimony from Albert Jr., in person, it didn't seem to Albert Jr. that their relationship had changed. 
Richard was seemingly afraid to confront Albert Jr. face-to-face and acted as if they were still friends. But that September 14th day when Patricia opened the door, Richard pushed his way inside, brandishing his firearm. At this time, only Patricia and five-year-old Damien were at home. Richard Jur forced Patricia into the master bedroom where he bound her, leaving Damien free at first before he decided to take Damien hostage as he freed Patricia and forced her to carry items from inside the house to the Luna's family car. The items included two VCRs, a telephone, a caller ID box, a CD player, four watches, change, and a money clip with food stamps. At some point, Richard took Patricia and Damien into the kitchen and bound them both to chairs with rope and black electrical tape. He repeatedly asked Patricia whether she or her son should die first. He also asked if she knew where Albert Jr. was. At about 3 p.m., 18-year-old Rochelle Luna arrived at home. When she walked through the door, she too was attacked by Richard. He forced her into her bedroom where he gagged her, tied her wrist to the bed, cut off her clothes with a knife, and raped and tortured her. Richard ripped Rochelle's earring through her earlobe and inflicted multiple shallow knife wounds to the back of her head. All of this occurred while Rochelle was still alive, with her mom and baby brother just a few feet away in the kitchen. Richard ultimately stabbed Rochelle repeatedly in the chest and then slit her throat. He then went into the kitchen and told Patricia that he had just raped and killed her daughter. At 4 p.m., Albert Sr. arrived home from work. Once he made his way inside, Richard Jerf handcuffed him and forced him to crawl to the master bedroom. He then beat the 46-year-old father of three repeatedly in the head with an aluminum baseball bat. Jerf removed the handcuffs and taped Albert Sr.'s hands and wrist with black electrical tape and left him there to bleed to death. He went back into the kitchen and told Patricia that her husband was dead. This monster then turned his attention to five-year-old Damien. Jerv tried to snap the little boy's neck by twisting his head all the way around, but nothing happened. So he grabbed an electrical cord from a lamp in the kitchen, stripped all the insulation from the wires, taped it to Damien's calf, and flipped the switch in an effort to electrocute him. But that didn't work either. At this point, Albert Sr., whose beating had been so severe, the bleeding from the wounds to his head were potentially fatal, mustered up enough strength to free himself from the tape around his wrist and grab a pocket knife. He charged at Richard Jerf and stabbed him in his right side, inflicting a serious wound. Albert Sr. fought with everything he had to protect his family, but eventually, Jerf overpowered the injured man and stabbed him with enough force that the blade of the knife went through Albert Sr.'s right arm and into his torso. Richard Jerf then shot him six times. His body fell at the feet of his wife and youngest son. Jerf then continued to torture Patricia, asking her, Do you want to watch your kid die, or do you want your kid to watch you die? Jerf then shot Patricia and Damien in the head at a close range. Wounded and now in a rush to destroy evidence, Richard poured gas on the bodies and throughout the house. He lit the red fuse cord, but put it out when he realized there were children playing outside. Not because he had an ounce of concern for their safety, but because he wouldn't have been able to flee the scene quick enough without being spotted. Instead, he turned on two of the stove burners and placed an empty pizza box and a rag on the stove, hoping that it would ignite. 
The demon that is Richard Jerf had systematically tortured and murdered the Luna family in an attack that lasted over seven excruciating hours. When the coast was clear, Jerf hopped into the Luna's car and drove to his apartment to meet up with his girlfriend, Emily Boswell, at roughly 6 p.m. Hey y'all, if you've been listening for a while, then you know one of the most important things in my life is sleep. Seriously, they don't call me the nap queen around here for nothing. So I'm always looking for ways to improve my sleep. I have to admit that at first I was skeptical about Blissey's silk pillowcase after I seen it all over the internet, cause I never believe the internet. But I can't even tell you how much I love my Blissey pillowcase. Not only is it good for sleep, always keeping your side of the pillow perfectly cool, Blissey's award-winning 100% mulberry silk pillowcases have been amazing for my hair. This pillowcase reduces frizz, tangles, and prevents hair breakage, and I don't wake up looking like a rat found itself a cozy little home on top of my head. It keeps the moisture in your hair and on your skin where it belongs, since silk doesn't absorb the moisture from your hair or off your face. Say goodbye to frizzy dry hair and wrinkles, dry flaky red skin in the morning, and wake up refreshed with healthier skin and hair. Blissey Silk Pillowcases are the best silk pillowcases on the market. I don't think I'll ever go back to a regular pillowcase again. They have a ton of different prints and colors and they make great gifts because there's an option for literally anyone. The holidays are just around the corner and if you're looking for the best gift you can give, look no further than a Blissey Silk Pillowcase. Silk is honestly the most luxurious gift to give your friends or family. These are the perfect gift for any occasion, plus it comes in gift-ready packaging they'll be sure to love. Literally everyone in my house has tried to steal my pillowcase to include my husband. They're all getting one for Christmas, they just don't know it yet. Try now risk-free for 60 nights at blissy.com slash least and get an additional 30% off. That's B-L-I-S-S-Y dot com slash least and use code least to get an additional 30% off. Give yourself the gift of a good night's sleep with Blissey. According to what Jerf later told the Arizona Republic, when he got to his girlfriend Emily, he told her everything. Richard Jerf stated to the outlet, I told her the details, everything, even about raping Rochelle. She was pretty shocked, pretty upset. But apparently she wasn't shocked or upset enough to call police. Instead, she went with Richard to dump the Luna's car in a parking lot and then drove him back to the house to pick up his car, which he had obviously driven to the house when he committed the murders. And then, according to Jerf, quote, Then she helped me make up a story to explain my wound, saying I'd got attacked by a couple of Mexicans at Westridge Mall. Because that was a completely believable story. I do want to point out here that Emily has a different account of the events, which is recorded in the court documents. Emily Boswell claimed that at first Richard told her the story he claimed they had made up together, the one about him being stabbed by two men who tried to rob him, and that Richard hadn't confessed to what actually happened until the following day on September 15th. I'd also like to point out that the Luna's car was dumped in a parking lot. 
and that at the point in which Richard Jerf told the story to the Arizona Republic, he had no reason to lie. But it's possible old Emily wanted to minimize her involvement. However, she was never charged with anything in connection with the murders. Richard Jerf eventually made his way to the hospital to get treated for his stab wound, and once he got there, he had to be admitted. Meanwhile, the pizza box and rag on the stove at the Luna home had failed to ignite, and Albert Luna Jr. had been trying to get a hold of his parents. You see, he hadn't been home the night before on the 13th or at all on the day of the 14th. Though he had called several times throughout the day, no one had picked up the phone. By this point, it was getting late and Albert Jr. was growing more and more concerned. So he went over to check on his family. Albert Jr. arrived to his family home at approximately 11.45 p.m. He was nervous as he made his way inside. It wasn't like his parents to not answer the phone. He walked in and began calling their names out loud, but there was no answer. In a matter of moments, Albert Jr.'s life was changed forever. He discovered the bodies of his entire family, and there was absolutely nothing he could do for them. He backed out of the house and sped off to his girlfriend's to call police. Remember, this was 1993, and though cell phones were around, not many people had one. Police arrived moments later and began processing a scene so horrific it stunned even the most seasoned officers. And as investigators processed the scene, Richard Jerf continued to run his mouth. According to court documents the following day, so September 15th, as Jerf sat in the hospital, he bragged about what he had done. He described the torture and murder of the Luna family in detail to his girlfriend, Emily, excited as he described the blood, saying to Emily, quote, you should have been there. And he wasn't done there. On September 16th, he had a friend named Travis Webb check him out of the hospital, but he didn't want to return to his own apartment and he just couldn't stop talking about what he had done. Travis Webb rented a motel room near 51st Avenue and Interstate 10. And once they were inside the room, Jerv told him all about the brutal murders. And at some point that day, he called another friend who lived in California and again boasted about the killings. Meanwhile, investigators were hot on his trail. Four days after the murders, which brings us to September 18, 1993, search warrants were executed on the motel room, car, and Jerf's apartment. According to court records, a 9mm semi-automatic pistol, ammunition, and extra ammo clips were recovered from under the driver's seat of his car. Police also found black tape and latex gloves in the car as well as in a trash can in Jerf's apartment in Glendale. The latex gloves and black tape were consistent with black tape and gloves recovered from inside the Luna's home. Between the car and the apartment, investigators also recovered artificial flowers and a vase, a cardboard knife sheath, a red fuse cord, and of course everything that had been taken from the Luna home the CD player, VCRs, caller ID, watches, Rochelle's necklace, Patricia's car keys, a telephone, loose change, and food stamps. Needless to say, Richard Jerv was arrested on the spot. And when he was, officers found the front page of the Arizona Republic, detailing the murders and a handcuff key in his possession. And further, when it came to the search of the apartment, the Arizona Republic reported that Jerv had kind of a shrine in his apartment devoted to Freddy Krueger. 
In case you've been living under a rock, Freddy Krueger is a fictional killer in the slasher film Nightmare on Elm Street, who murders children in their sleep. Anyhow, apparently Richard Jurf had a thing for Freddy. And this thing for Freddy would be a point of contention with Jurf after it was published in the paper and on TV. Jurf claimed the media had been very unfair to him and attempted to paint him in a negative light. Like he needed any help with that, but I digress. Jerf stated to the Arizona Republic, Those articles and what they said on TV, it's all BS. They've portrayed my apartment as all dedicated to Freddy Krueger. That's not true. He went on further. It's true I had a Freddy Krueger model and Freddy Krueger costume and a street sign that said Elm Street in my apartment. But the rest of my apartment is decorated with stock car racing stuff. So it was absolutely true. Got it. Moving on. Richard Jerf was, of course, thrown in the slammer and later indicted by a Maricopa County grand jury on 18 charges. There were four counts of first-degree murder for the murders of Albert Sr., Patricia, Damien, and Rochelle. One count of first-degree burglary, four counts of kidnapping, one count of sexual assault, five counts of aggravated assault, one count of attempted arson of an occupied structure, one count of theft, and one count of misconduct involving weapons. Arizona is a death penalty state, and with those charges, Richard Jerf was facing a death sentence. Initially, he pled not guilty. Albert Luna Jr. later admitted that he had broken into Richard Jerf's apartment in January of 1993. He was granted immunity from prosecution. Winter is basically here, and I'm going to be completely honest. It's not my season. One of the worst parts is struggling to find the right temperature when I'm going to sleep. The heat's on, and I don't want to be cold, but I also don't want to wake up drenched in sweat. Let me just tell you, I've found a way to avoid all that and stay the perfect temperature all night long using silver-infused bedsheets by Miracle Made that were inspired by NASA. Using silver-infused fabrics, Miracle-Made sheets are thermoregulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long, so you get better sleep every night. Miracle sheets are luxuriously comfortable, too, without the high price tag of other luxury brands and feel as nice, if not nicer, than sheets used by some five-star hotels. And with the holiday season quickly approaching, Miracle sheets make the perfect gift for your spouse, friends, or family. I mean, who doesn't want better sleep and luxurious feeling bed sheets? And since these come with three free towels, you get two gifts in one. You should probably keep the towels for yourself. I'm just saying I would. Go to trymiracle.com slash least to try it today or gift it to someone special this holiday season. And we've got a special deal just for our listeners. Save over 40%. And if you use our promo LEAST at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash LEAST. And use the code LEAST to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40%. 
Again, that's trymiracle.com slash least to treat yourself, a friend, or a loved one this holiday season. As I'm sure you can imagine, the case received a lot of publicity. As the months passed, moving towards trial, Jerf went on a media blitz of sorts of his own, speaking to the papers and whining and crying about the way he had been portrayed. Of course, there was the whole Freddy Krueger thing, but Jerf also complained about his apartment being robbed and his treatment in jail. He told the Arizona Republic that when he got to jail, he was taunted by the other inmates. Jerf claimed that when he first got to the jail, the other inmates whispered, they're going to kill you. They're going to kill you whenever he had to walk past their cells. And that they also told him he should just kill himself. Around Halloween, a month after the murders, he had attempted suicide after he was given a Halloween card with a small piece of metal inside. He stated to the outlet, I made a sharp edge and cut myself. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, Guards found him bleeding from his wrist and he was treated for the injury and quickly recovered. Jerf went on and on and described the fact that he was charged in the murder of nearly an entire family as, quote, an unbelievable nightmare. I've searched all over for sympathy, but I just can't seem to find it. According to court documents on February 15, 1995, Jerf filed a motion to remove his court-appointed attorneys. He wanted to represent himself for all future court proceedings to include his murder trial. A hearing was held about a week later, and the judge found that Jerf's waiver of counsel was made voluntarily, knowingly, and intelligently. Those are the trial court's words, not mine. Two attorneys were assigned as advisory counsel. This meant he was able to represent himself, but the two attorneys were there to give him advice when he wanted or needed it. Weeks later, the state filed a motion for a Rule 11 evaluation, which is what a competency hearing is referred to in the state of Arizona. The prosecution wanted to make sure that Jerf was not only mentally competent to stand trial, but also to represent himself in that trial. One of the reasons cited was due to that previous suicide attempt. The trial court ordered a pre-screening evaluation to determine whether a Rule 11 examination was warranted. A doctor by the name of Jack Potts evaluated Richard Jerf and pronounced him competent. And with that, the trial court concluded that no reasonable grounds existed to grant a complete Rule 11 competency hearing, and the case moved forward with Jerf representing himself. On August 16, 1995, Jerf shocked everyone when he entered a plea agreement with the state. Against the advice of his advisory counsel, he pled guilty to four counts of first-degree murder, and in exchange, the state dropped all the other 14 charges. However, there was no agreement when it came to sentencing, and the judge made this very clear to Richard Jerf. The death penalty was still very much on the table. Judge Michael Ryan addressed Jerf in court, stating, Do you understand that for each count you may be sentenced to death? Yes, Your Honor, Jerf responded. The judge continued, Do you understand there have been no agreements as to what sentence I can impose? It's up to me. And again, Jerf responded yes. 
and with that, the judge accepted the plea and scheduled sentencing. In court, Jerf said he had taken the plea to spare the Luna family from hearing the horrific testimony of how an entire family had been tortured and then murdered. But when he sat down again with the press in the days after his guilty plea, Richard Jerf told a different story. He sat down once again with the Arizona Republic and explained that he was only trying to help himself. Richard Jerf, in his own words, ladies and gentlemen. It was all my fault. All my fault. I'm not crazy. I don't hear voices. I didn't have a terrible childhood. I just did what I did. And it's my fault. He went on further to say, I confessed because I think I have a better chance of avoiding the death penalty if a jury and judge don't hear all the details of the killings over and over. The details are so bad. It would really inflame everyone, and I think I'd get death. Regardless of his master plan, death is exactly what Richard Jerf would get. After a very lengthy aggravation and mitigation hearing, one in which the public learned of some of the horrific details of the crime for the first time, the trial court found multiple aggravating factors and no statutory mitigating factors, and Richard Jerf was sentenced to death on each of the four counts of first-degree murder. After the judge imposed his sentence, Jerf scoffed and smiled as he said, They can only kill me once. At no time has this bottom feeder shown any remorse for the senseless murders of four innocent people. Over the years, Richard Jerf has exhausted every appeal humanly possible and applied for post-conviction sentence relief. I won't waste your time with the details because they have all been denied. Richard Jerf is currently sitting on death row at Iman Prison in Florence, Arizona. His execution date has not been scheduled. However, since all appeals have been exhausted, he should be getting pretty close to the top of the chopping block. However, the state of Arizona has had some issues when it comes to carrying out executions, after what some believe was a botched execution. Joseph Wood was sentenced to death for the 1989 murders of his former girlfriend Debbie Dietz and her father Eugene in Tucson. Wood had reportedly abused Debbie during their five-year relationship. He walked through a restraining order into a car body shop owned by Debbie's family and shot her father Eugene in the chest. Debbie tried to get away, but Wood caught her, restrained her, and then shot her once in the stomach and once in the chest. He then pointed his gun at arriving officers and was shot by police, but obviously survived the shooting. He was convicted of the double murder and sentenced to death. In 2014, Arizona executed Joseph Wood by lethal injection, but the process took nearly two hours, during which he reportedly gassed and, according to one reporter from the Associated Press, struggled for breath over 600 times. Wood had to be injected 15 times before he was effectively executed. This led to outrage by some, especially those who already disagree with the death penalty. But Arizona's prison department director, Charles Ryan, challenged the idea that the execution was botched and said that the prison's medical team verified several times that Wood was comatose and never in pain during his execution. Ryan stated, Throughout his execution, I conferred and collaborated with our IV team members and was assured unequivocally that the inmate was comatose and never in pain or distress. 
regardless of how you feel about the death penalty or whether or not you believe the execution was in fact botched, some painted the convicted to be some sort of victim. I'm not going to go too far down this rabbit hole, but I will say that the true victims in Wood's case were Debbie and Eugene, and that like Richard Jerf, Joseph Wood never showed true remorse for his crime. In fact, his final words to Debbie and Eugene's family before his execution were, quote, I take comfort knowing today my pain stops, and I said a prayer that on this or any other day, you may find peace in all your hearts, and may God forgive you all. He asked that God forgave them, and while he did, he smiled and laughed in their faces. The family later spoke to Sky News. Jeannie Brown, Debbie's sister, said, What I saw today with him being executed, it is nothing compared to what happened on August 7, 1989. What's excruciating is seeing your father lying there in a pool of blood, seeing your sister lying in a pool of blood. Debbie's brother-in-law, Richard Brown, added, I saw the life go out of my sister-in-law's eyes. You guys are blowing it all out of proportion about these drugs. This man, he conducted a horrifying murder. And you worry about the drug and how it affects him? Why don't we give him a bullet? Why don't we give him some Drano? Now my family can rest in peace. Whether you consider Wood's execution botched or not, it did raise concerns about the efficacy and humanity of lethal injection methods and debates about the death penalty and the need for more humane execution protocols. And in Arizona, it sparked an eight-year moratorium on executions. That was until 2021 when, according to AZ Central, Arizona changed its lethal injection protocol from a combination of two drugs to a single drug, which is phenobarbital. The state announced that it had found a supply of that drug and a pharmacist who could compound it into an injectable form. In 2022, Arizona resumed executions, and that year, three death sentences were carried out. Clarence Dixon was executed for the 1978 sexual assault and murder of 21-year-old Arizona State University student Deanna Bowden. Frank Atwood was put to death by lethal injection for the 1984 murder of 8-year-old Vicki Lynn Hoskinson. And Murray Hooper was executed for the double homicide of Patrick Redman and Redman's mother-in-law Helen Phelps in 1980. But in January of 2023, Arizona Governor Katie Hobbs placed another hold on executions, pending a review of the state's procedures by a death penalty independent review commission appointed by the governor herself. The commission hasn't yet completed its review, so though Richard Jerf has exhausted all appeals, it's unclear when his execution will be carried out. Albert Luna Jr. lost his entire family that September night. He has gone on to live his life with no further run-ins with the law and out of the public eye. And really, who could blame him? His entire family was taken away from him by a monster he had befriended, and he himself had narrowly escaped with his life. Make no mistake, Richard Jerf intended on killing Albert Jr. too. That's why he remained inside the Luna home for seven hours, torturing and murdering each family member as they returned home. He was waiting for Albert Jr. And Richard Jerf can say whatever he wants about his motive, but it's clear that it went deeper than him being robbed of a handful of belongings. 
Richard Jurf is the epitome of evil. There's really no other explanation for it. On the other hand, Albert Luna Sr. is the definition of a hero. Had it not been for his heroic actions, there would have been a fifth murder that day. But like a true hero, Albert Sr. fought with everything he had to save his family, up until his last dying breath. While he wasn't able to save Patricia, Rochelle, Damien, or himself, he was able to save the life of his firstborn son and namesake. After a vicious beating, one that should have been fatal, this man used every ounce of strength he had left to pull himself up and defend his family. And that, my friends, is what a man of courage looks like. May Albert Sr., Patricia, Rochelle, and Damien never be forgotten. That's all for this week, but I'll be bringing you an all-new case next Thursday. If you haven't already, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss it. In the meantime, you can find me on Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these podcast. You can get all your episodes ad-free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Head on over to patreon.com slash least of these to support the show today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.